Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea is wandering about the British countryside, no doubt sneering at the dairy produce contained therein. So I'm delighted to be joined by arts editor, opera singer and quondam indie pop star Lucy Dallas. Hello, Hello, Lucy. Hello. Lucy, you've got such a starry pedigree that only last week a major figure in television comedy messaged me to recall the day he spent with you and your band at Abbey Road Studios, which is the studios of the Beatles. Yes, it was. And he remembered it fondly. Yeah. So when I'm making these jokes about you being an indie pop star and everyone's saying it's just him being a (laughs) swear word of choice, (laughs) it's not, is it? You were genuinely an indie pop star? I think pop star is a, is an ambitious term. How would you describe it? How would you describe it? I we I we I made some music that was released publicly, and it did quite well. No, not that well. What was the but band we called? had a good time. What was the band called? The Impossibles. The Impossibles. And you are on YouTube. No, if, we're not on YouTube. No, you are on YouTube. We're, we're not on YouTube. So if anyone is interested in Lucy Dallas's band, The Impossibles, please don't. Please do that. go on to YouTube. Actually, there's loads of bands called The Impossibles. Right. A lot of sixties garage bands called The Impossibles. Really? So you won't be able to tell. Okay, so if you put in The Impossibles, the song about the drum. What's the, what's the title? The drum. The drum. Right. So if you put The Impossibles, the drum. Our producer Matt is nodding. He's about to do it now. He's, in fact, he is doing it on please his computer as we feel speak. They have to do this. Please do that. Uh, but also, Lucy, among your many other talents, you're a fluent French speaker, so you can be honorary pronunciation guru in our conversation about Macron. Macron. That's yeah, fine. it depends how French you want to go, but that's can, yes, that's lovely. I, you, you say it. You can say Macron or Macron. Macron. Or I can't. I can't. I can't yeah, Macron. No, I sound no, silly. That's lovely. It. You don't sound silly. Okay. Uh, make sure you're following this podcast on Twitter at FBFM underscore podcast. And please do review it on iTunes. I've noticed we have had a couple of new reviews recently, but not enough to sate our insatiable appetite there. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week, vive la révolution. And what a peculiar revolution it has proven to be. The winner of the French election is a 39-year-old ex-banker who has ridden a populist yet centrist movement from nowhere to defeat blonde bogey figure and notable fascist Marine Le Pen. How, why and what does it mean are all legitimate questions that now follow. 
Joining us on the back of a piece written fresh for the TLS this week to answer them is the incomparable Sudhir Hazara Singh. We also have a fiction special of the TLS this week, which includes excellent pieces on some problems with fantasy fiction, including a rare knock on Angela Carter and the never-ending rise of Nordic noir. Toby Lichtig, the TLS fiction editor, will be on hand to discuss all this and his own review of Jez Butterworth's The Ferryman. Continuing matters theatrical, we will also be joined in the studio by Hal Jensen, who has reviewed Angels in America this week. To France, then, where we have seen a landslide victory for Emmanuel Macron, winning around two-thirds of the vote and defeating soft-voiced fascist Marine Le Pen. So what's significant about this? Well, it's a very pro-EU vote. Macron walked to his victory speech to the strains of Ode to Joy, the EU anthem. It's a vote for centrism, which looked like it was going out of fashion. Brexit and Trump, we have been told, was a rejection of orthodoxy of previous attempts to hold the middle ground. Well, the centre has held in France, as it did in Holland, as it will probably do in Germany. It is still, however, a vote against the status quo. Macron's movement en marche was founded scarcely a couple of years ago. He has no traditional political party. Although it's worth noting that political parties in France have no great long-standing histories. The Front National was a creation of the 70s, for example. But he's talking the language of change. And it doesn't mean that the far right has been routed. Le Pen called her vote historic and massive, and the election does indicate that around a third of the voting French public, with a healthy crop of youngsters at its heart, would have countenanced a fascist as president. It's a fascinating moment in European history. And to tell us more is Sudhir Hazara Singh, who has spent the last few weeks in Paris and has written about his impressions of what has happened and what will happen next for the TLS this week. He joins Lucy and me now. Um, so this was the expected victory. The favourite has triumphed in clear terms. Why do you think this is still a notable result? Well, Macron has basically, I mean, independently of what happens now uh, to his presidency, he's already rewritten the basic rules of French politics. You have to go back to Napoleon to have uh, an executive leader who's so young. Also, he's somebody who Traditionally, a French president has to have a kind of strong local base in order to be even competitive for the election. And Macron uh, didn't have one. He didn't have a party, um, a kind of mainstream party behind him. He has no uh, extensive experience in cabinet. And he comes from the center, which, you know, traditionally in France is kind of the Bermuda Triangle of French politics. And there have been many attempts before to try and put together the kind of coalition that he's aspiring to gather. And so for all these reasons, he's actually managed really a very spectacular breakthrough and things will never be quite the same. And what conclusions can we draw about the state of France? You make the point uh, very eloquently in the piece that in, in some ways this is, a, I suppose, an existential French election. It's an election where French philosophy, the philosophy of how, what sort of nation they want to be, they're uh, always existential. Oh, I know they're always existential. But this one particularly, so you feel, <laughs> what can we learn about the French psyche as it currently is as a result of this? Well, I think the face-off between Macron and Marine Le Pen on the second round was really a face-off between um, the sort of optimistic France, which Macron stands for, which is the sort of open, uh, buoyant, um, uh, outward-looking country 
definitely seeing France as being part of a, a wider European project. And on the other hand, the more defensive, anxious, pessimistic France, which in many respects Mein Le Pen represents. And the comforting thing that comes out of the election is that a majority of French people um, are willing to identify themselves with this more uh, optimistic, buoyant vision that Macron represents. I was interested also, Sadir, in your piece, you were talking about uh, there's all sorts of binary oppositions because they're the kind of great nation of binary opposition. But especially there was a geographical one that I, I wasn't really aware of. Well, it's, a, it, it's sort of double contrast. On the one hand, basically all the territories in the northeast, east and the southeast are the territories which are essentially the sort of deindustrialized parts of France. And they're the ones that are turning increasingly now to the Front National. And Macron stands for the sort of newly industrialized parts of the country in the west and in the southwest, where the economy is growing, where uh, the, the rate of unemployment is much lower. And added to that, there's an urban-rural division. So within the same department, you may have massive Front National votes in the periphery and in the countryside. And in the towns, you have very strong uh, levels of support for Macron. So the towns are basically supporting the pro-European, outward-looking candidate, and the countryside is turning increasingly to the Front National. In some ways, that's played out the same thing we have seen in Brexit, which was a very urban versus rural, southeast versus the rest of the country. Uh, we saw it in America with Trump. You know, you're talking about Rust Belt equivalences in France, are you not? So in some ways, despite it being a, a resounding vote for a centrist and a resounding vote for that sort of pro-EU approach, we are still seeing the same patterns we've seen in, in Britain and America, perhaps. Very similar in, in, in those respects. I mean, I think where the French are different is that now for at least 10 years, there's been this kind of existential debate about the future of the French nation. And that, I think, ties in with this kind of urban-rural divide, because most of the people who are voting for National um, in, in the provinces and in, and in rural France are also anxious about the future of France in an increasingly um, uh, English-speaking uh, world. So that's the kind of specific thing about France, that it's also a, a debate in part about the future of French identity, French culture. Um, although I think one of the good things about Macron is that he's not willing to kind of abandon that territory to the Front National, because he's also somebody who believes very passionately in the greatness of French culture. And he said that in his victory speech on Sunday. Yes, and he's always, I mean, he's, he, he quoting, quotes a lot of writers, doesn't he? Yes. He's and a, they're not particularly kind of populist. He's not, it doesn't sound as though he's appealing to the people when he quotes them. He's not soundbiting them. He's kind of, and they're rather, you know, they're rather abstruse, some of them. Yes, he's, and that's what I wrote in the piece, that, you know, when you hear him, he very much gives you the impression of being a sort of old-fashioned Republican schoolteacher. And that's his kind of philosophy background. He's somebody who comes from a kind of very humanist tradition. And he passionately believes that part of the duty of uh, public institutions is to create this kind of idea of a citizen who engages with, with the world of culture. And one of his proposals, um, uh, now that he's president, is to give every 18-year-old uh, a 500-euro uh, culture pass 
so that he or she can go and enjoy all the kind of great things that France has in terms of museums, art galleries. Could I convince him to add a subscription to the TLS to that, do you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sensing a business opportunity here for this. Jumping in there, yeah, the commercial that. level. But that might also be, as well as promoting French culture, that may also be a very canny thing to do in terms of a rather nice way of saying we are all French, whatever our origins, because there has been, as we know, a lot of anti-Islamic, sort of anti-North African... She wasn't openly racist, was she, Marine Le Pen, while she was campaigning, but she was pretty near. Pretty anti-Islamic, wasn't she? Yeah, well, and, she, and but if you, exactly. if, if you say specifically, this is for everybody, this is for everybody who lives here, you know, I don't care what your name is or what your religion is or what your background is, these great monuments of culture are for you as well. That's not only a cultural thing to do, it's a political statement. Exactly, exactly. And that's something that he also cares passionately about, the idea that, you know, with the exception of a very small minority of people, the vast majority of people of Islamic faith in France, he believes, are, are already integrated in, into the system, but they feel excluded partly because um, unemployment levels um, uh, in, in some of those areas are higher than, than the average, and he wants to draw them in. But aren't we being too optimistic here, Sidhu? Because that, that problem, that's... So I don't know if you say sort of cancer at the heart of the, the body politic in France, that concern, that, that anger, we've seen playing out in these results. We're still talking about rural areas or southeastern areas, aren't we, who are anti that way of thinking. And, and although it's a landslide victory, more than a third of French people, many of them very young, have voted for a fascist. More and, than a third of, sorry, French people who voted. Yeah, because yeah, there was a high, fairly high... And Abstention did well. very well. No, I, yeah. I, yeah, I get that. But do you know what I mean? That's not necessarily a cause for, for great celebration, is it? Well, I mean, the, the level of the kind of protest vote has been high in France for some time now. And I think what Macron says to that is we have to address the reasons why people feel angry and are protesting. And if we're able to address those issues... Uh, the protest vote will go down. I mean, everything will rest, I think, on how quickly he's able to bring the level of unemployment down, right? I mean, unemployment now, I mean, it's not just this kind of 10% figure that that one has to think about. It's that, you know, uh, in the 18 to 25 group, it's like one in four people are, are unemployed. Mm -hmm. Everything is going to depend on how quickly uh, he's able to, to turn that round. Some people think that he's not got enough by way. His economic policies are very kind of orthodox um, supply side policies. So he wants to cut regulation, cut corporate tax, um, basically hand things over to, to the entrepreneurs and hope that they'll be able to, to grow the economy. But I'm not sure that that'll be enough. And just finally, what about Le Pen? I mean, is there a narrative here? She's got 34% of the vote. She's going to, as, as demonstrated by the fact she stood aside as the, as the president of uh, Front National, she can completely rebrand this party. She can come back in, in five years' time, can't she? Is that the next step that, that this, this party, this surge that could happen, could, could just be pushed back five years? Well, they're caught in their contradiction as well, because she has the sort of two strategies that the, that the FN is trying to follow. One is to try and pick up on the kind of discontented, disaffected working class vote, which is basically in the north and in the east of France. The other is to play very much the kind of anti-immigrant, anti-Islamic card. That's the FN of the south. 
Um, and the FN hasn't really fundamentally decided which of those two strategies it wants to pursue. And trying to pursue both, as, as she did in 2017, doesn't work. So I think uh, the future of the FN will depend on how it kind of faces up to that contradiction and which direction it decides to go in. And meanwhile, the future of the EU has been resoundingly strengthened by this vote. It's a reprieve. Yes, absolutely. And Macron, you know, that's one of the great things, as you mentioned in your introduction. I mean, he makes no secret of the fact that he's a passionate European and, um, and Britain will have to watch out too. Well, we might leave it there then. On, on, on that note, uh, Sudhir Hazar Singh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Um, before we go, uh, Lucy, I want you to tell me the joke you heard on the radio about this French election. Oh, cause, cause, yes. Because you were going to do it and uh, it made me smile. It was very, Well, it's not exactly a joke, but it was just a very nice way of formulating it. And I can't claim credit for this. But somebody said that um, it was playing out um, as a kind of Freudian election in that it was the woman who killed her father against the man who married his mother. So there's a bit of um, highbrow kind of highbrow pop psychology. Yeah, very funny. Very funny. What's interesting is we've got a couple of people. We've got Sudhir and we've also got Adam Thorpe, who's writing from a French village in the south. Melanchon, both um, Sudhir and Adam. Melanchon was a serious figure, wasn't he? he I mean, really was, to I me, think. he felt like this yeah. was silly communist. No, I don't think so. And I think he was. I think a lot of people were actually very disappointed that like, clearly they were going to vote for Macron because. They were not going to abstain and they were obviously not going to vote for, for Marine Le Pen. But, but he, I mean, if we're being very kind of crude about it, he was the kind of Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. um, potentially. And people were very excited about him. And I think he's a very... He, he's, he, he did rather better than Corbyn's going to do, I think. <laughs> we'll see. But he, I think he's very charismatic and persuasive and, and had a lot of kind of momentum behind him. Not that sort of momentum, no, no, French momentum. Proper momentum. <laughs> The TLS, as it does occasionally, has a fiction special this week. The effervescent Claire Loudon has examined a farrago of fantasy fiction, if you'll excuse the alliteration, which all bear the marks of the fairy godmothers of the genre, Margaret Atwood and the super-trendy Angela Carter. Loudon is a sceptic, both of the prevalence of lupine storylines, she believes the wolf as an image of wildness has been overexposed, and the quality of fantasy writing more generally, which can tend to the soppy and the sloppy. Keeping in the murderous gloom of Northern Europe, Heather O'Donoghue has considered the health of Nordic noir. She asks the pertinent question, what is it about these wealthy, egalitarian, socially secure states that has given rise to such a bleak and disturbing genre? The answer seems to be a combination of atmospheric landscape, political awareness and schadenfreude. The man who commissioned these investigations into genre writing is the fiction editor of the TLS, notable fan of Ema McBride, Toby Lichtig, who joins Lucy and me in the studio now. Toby, I've been mispronouncing your name now for a year. Well, and you kindly sent me this, this email saying, very gently and very politely saying, well, stop, stop doing that. There's, is Toby Lichtig okay? There, yes, perfect. There's there's no there's no very good way of pronouncing my name because I think it goes back to the Stettel and it's probably Lichtig, but right. I think it got ang- anglicised a while ago. Yeah, so and, it's uh, Lichtig. We'll stick with Lichtig. Lichtig. Yeah. Well, I apologise for having Absolutely previously fine. got it wrong. Let's talk about fantasy fiction. I was very convinced by this argument by Claire Ladd, and what does she have against it? I think I think her real beef is specifically with with fairy tales, with with modern fairy tales that are no more than minor variations on the same old themes that we know from those fairy tales of yore from the nineteenth century and, and and you know far further back in time, and and her main problem is that 
not enough is being done by a lot of these authors to update the tropes. So we have, you know, we have wolves, we have ravens, we have mirrors, we have forests and travelling circuses and dwarves and trapeze acts. And unless something new and interesting is being done with these ideas, then we're why not really bother? gaining anything and why bother? And she's not saying it's, it's, it's not fair game to have a go, but I think, I think like, with, like with any tropes that are that are, that are well worn you just have to work a bit harder it's a bit like you know why write a holocaust novel unless you can unless you can inject something new and interesting into it that's it well i was taken by her claim that there's a connection between writing this sort of fiction and what she calls late career laziness a sense that fairy tales are low-hanging fruit because like you i've been a sort of jobbing fiction reviewer and you do occasionally get you know i was thinking a.s byatt's little black book of stories mick jackson's 10 sorry tales or neil gaiman's the ocean at the end of the lane and i you get them as a reviewer and you get to the end, and you think, and it's kind of footling and fine, but you get the, the 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 question, why bother, is ever looming on your lips. It is, and I, and I do think it can be low hanging fruit. But that said, there are some fantastic modern modern versions of fairy tales, and you can look at um, Helen Oyeyemi's written a very interesting collection. There was a wonderful collection a couple of years ago by. Uh, a debut author called Angela Redman and these people are doing different things with the genre there aren't any wolves as far as I can remember for a start so yes it's low-hanging fruit but you can also do it interestingly it just depends how you do it and she has a go I can just see Lucy tensing up here she has a good pop at Angela Carter which is a bit like having a go at the Pope in some ways because I think in literary circles Angela Carter is someone that you don't really mess with well yes and no I mean Adela Carter fell rather out of fashion after she died. So yeah. she died. Yeah. She's been only been fairly recently yeah. sort of So sort of in the, in the 90s and early noughties, no one was really talking about Angela Carter, perhaps in university departments. Um, people like to write dissertations on her because, yeah. you know, she's... she's she she does she, lots of clever she's things. Interesting. She's interesting. because this she's is the beginning of the she's fight back. Can she, I just no, say? She's <laughs> interesting, and, and I'm I'm not particularly going to have a, a pop at Angela Carter here either. But it's actually only in, uh, only recently, and particularly since Edmund Gordon's excellent biography of her, that only that they only appeared last year, and then with the biography came the reissue of lots of the books and, and stories. So she's having a bit of a moment at the uh, at the moment. Um, so it's a particularly interesting time for Claire Lowther to, <laughs> to then come on, out. Lucy, and have what, a go on, what, 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 well, Lucy. defence of Angela Carter. I'm just my. I think she's she in 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 this piece. She's a bit of a victim of her own success because um, Claire Loudon is saying, "Oh, I'm fed up of wolves going through forests and ravens and people looking in mirrors and a feather fluttering down." Absolutely fair enough, but that wasn't happening when Angela Carter did it, Who and did it when first? Margaret Atwood did it, and when they when they did it, it was. Especially the, the the kind of wolf and the woman and the radical thing. Now it seems a bit tired, you know, the wild beast and men want to tame women and animals, all of that. But it's only tired because she came up with it and everyone went, whoa, really? And looked at it yeah. differently. And, and I think that, that she can't be blamed for for pale imitations of her work. And the same with Margaret Atwood. And I think they have inspired well, she some... Qu- she, qu- she quotes under the Carter a line, the last thing the old lady saw in all this world was a young man eyes like cinders, naked as a stone, approaching her bed. In all this world, eyes like cinders, says Claire Loudon. She compares it to two other authors. Carter is the sloppier, soppier writer. More wolves, yes, but more of the sentimental drivel too. That's one sentence. Angela Carter, taken her. if you take the whole of her work, she's yeah. not sentimental and she's not sloppy. Sometimes she's terrifying. I yeah. mean, really terrifying, not in a kind of spooky fairy tale way. So do you think that we should take adult fairy tales seriously, Toby? Because there's a case in here that also these things are better aimed at 
children. So you take Philip Pullman as an example where they know their audience and they're, and, and they're written for a specific audience, and whereas adult fairy tales feel like just a spin-off in some ways. Well, perhaps you have more freedom um, in writing for children in that respect. You don't have to you constrain think. yourself with the notion of being literary the or making the pressures off, and yeah. in a way that, that frees you up to perhaps be more interesting with your fantasy figures and your creatures and your bestiary um mm. so yes i think to a certain extent that's right but i don't yeah i don't think um i don't think adult fairy tales are inherently silly um i'm not really sure any anything's not fair game for fiction that's a, that's a fair well let's, let's let's move to another type of fiction let's move on to nordic noir we had a piece on it in our cheltenham edition last year by ursa Sigurdadotter. It's pretty well pronounced. There's no one here who can who can do any better than that. I feel that was lovely. Uh, Anyway, uh, and she reflects. She's 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 one of the great practitioners of it. She reflected on its rise in popularity, and and it's even given rise to things like tartan noir or sunshine noir. I learned in the piece today. What's what's going on? Is this is Nordic noir now just a very well established thing? Yes, it is. What's going on to a certain extent is marketing. Um, We we like things to be neatly packaged. If our genre fiction has a another kind of element of genre to it the, the genre of place um that that helps to sell things as well so you have mediterranean noir you have there's a lot of italian noir we had quite a nice piece a few weeks ago by joseph farrell about the yeah. the the italian detective genre and how italy is the new wild west uh, that sense of lawlessness nordic noir is very different obviously um, and what do you think what's your, what do you think the, the attraction is the attraction well the <laughs> Nordic, what is Nordic noir to start with? I mean, it's obviously its place. It's it's dark forests and snow and things like that. It is the whole social ethos of those Nordic countries. So it's basically about the welfare state and bad things happening. We don't expect all these nasty things to happen in these these wonderfully um, egalitarian societies like Sweden and Iceland. And yet, when nasty things do happen, and it's not just a case of people being murdered, it's corruption, it's the difficulties of multiculturalism and globalisation and immigration brushing up against these formerly very, very homogenous societies. We get a nice discord, and that, that creates interesting fiction. And I think that's true, the genre of fiction generally. I, I'm, I'm very fond, as you know, of sort of American crime writing, sort of James Elroy and Elmore Leonard and Joseph Wambo. And I suppose the attraction, I was trying to think, of why do I like it? And the idea, I suppose, is it's a satisfactory narrative conclusion in a world that has no satisfactory narrative conclusion. That's the pleasure you get with a with a genre novel. You kind of know what you're getting. So the snowiness, I suppose, of Nordic noir, you know you're going to get a certain amount of things you're familiar with, and it's probably going to come right with a click like a closing box at the end of it. Yes, there's a comfort in that. And we, we read a lot of that kind of fiction for comfort. Back to the fairy tales, for example, I mean, you know, tired tropes of snow and forest, it seems to work better in detective thrillers when when we're reading it to expect certain things rather than perhaps in more, in inverted commas, literary updatings of fairy stories where we want to be challenged a bit more, perhaps. Or whereas fairy tales proclaim their own inventiveness as a benefit, whereas a genre novel does the exact opposite. Yes. It, say, it says, well, please welcome me in, you know what you're going to get. Exactly, and then once you're, once you're in, you can then play with things and be interesting in different ways. I think, I mean, in some way they give you the pleasure of, of a, something like a crossword or a puzzle as well. You know what the deal is, you're going to work through a process and it's going to be okay. You you th- it will be worked out in the end, as you say. Do you think the television and film have... have also cemented this because I've actually not watched very much Nordic noir but I'm familiar with The Bridge and I'm familiar with 
the visuals that are attached to it and and there was the Stieg Larsson stuff as well which was and both killing Euro- yeah the European film and an American film wasn't it as yes. well so mm. it's it's sort of passed away it's passed out of literary culture into mainstream pop culture is that a is that is that a benefit do you think is that is that sort of fixed it in everyone's minds more I think to a certain extent, yes, and I'm sure that if you're not naturally drawn to to literature but you got very into some of the TV series, you might be more likely to pick up one of the books, which is great. Um, I think a lot of the literature is better than the TV. Um, The Killing, for example, I mean, I I loved watching it, but it was completely ludicrous. Um, I think there's a website that's devoted to the 73 plot flaws (laughs) in The Killing, all of which are completely true. Any one of these things, you know could actually undermine the entire series. And is that true of these these books and the ones you've read? Are, are Do you read them, Lucy, by the way? Are you a... I'm afraid I don't. And you no, don't I haven't anything, read any of them. I don't like... <laughs> don't show me up. No, the only ones... I don't, I don't have much of a stomach for the frankly endless killing and torturing of young women that seems to go on Not don't, don't want to get too um, well no that's interesting it does, I, th- I do find it does happen a lot yeah, there is a bit of that and the killing was certainly guilty of that yeah. I like um, from the little I've read I'm going to show myself out with my pronunciation I'll be Indre Daftsen so Sigurdsdottir's Icelandic colleague yeah. and uh, one of his books Jar City was turned into a fantastic noirish film as well so I thoroughly recommend that uh, uh, it's interesting though that the, the practitioners of this are women as well as it, uh, oh yeah no that's yeah yeah that's uh, absolutely they are and i think some of the more ghoulish ones and and also you and know the detectives themselves are women yeah 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 no i'm not saying that it's that it's it, that it's um that it's all kind of dictated by men i mean it's clearly not but i find i find that on the things on tv as well the ones that i like there's um which is a woman but she writes as fred vargas french and she does sort of detective fiction, and those are lovely. There is a little bit of, there has to be a bit of kind of jeopardy and violence yeah, and yeah. killing. I mean, yeah. you know, fair enough. But they're very nicely worked out, and they're all they're all constantly drinking white wine and kind of quoting fine literature and stuff. It sounds unbearable, but it's brilliant. Actually. Yeah, Fred Vargas. Yeah, it's really, it's really good. I, I presume they're playing off that anyway. In this, as we say, the Scandinavian thing, they, they come from a very egalitarian society. A often quite a proto-feminist societies, these Scandinavian societies. So the fact that there are women in jeopardy um, is probably a deliberate thing because they're trying to they're trying to create unease, aren't they, with these books? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's unexpected. We're going to talk about one other thing because Robert Irwin, in the paper this week, makes the case for The Man on a Donkey by H.F.M. Prescott, which is a novel about the pilgrimage of grace in Tudor times as the greatest ever historical novel, he says, in terms. I'm... Reading it now, it's, it's very nice. <laughs> I'm not sure. It, 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 yeah, indeed. it's 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 kind of it, it's quite beautifully written, but it's it's relatively sedate. It didn't strike me. I'm only on page thirty or something as the greatest ever historical novel. So I thought we might finish this part on our own recommendations for the great greatest ever, as Robert Irwin says, the greatest ever historical novel. His is the Man on a Donkey. Toby Lishtig, what is yours? I always shrink slightly when I'm asked to, to say my best or favourite or grace or anything, but here I am, and I'm being put on the spot. I mean, perhaps Middlemarch. I mean, it is essentially a historical novel. It was written, it was written in the 1870s. Are we going to allow this? Nice. Well, it, it, was, it was written in the 1870s but it's, set 50 years previously. But it's not about No, but, it's, but, it, it, but, it, it, but it very, very cleverly reflects on and evokes a time, and mm. as far as I'm concerned, that's what historical that's novel what historical does. Novel. So another one I was actually thinking of was The Leopard, The Gattopardo. Oh, yes. Also, it was, you know, it was published in the 50s, set about 50, 60 years previously and again it does that thing but, but, but having said that I think my favourite historical novel is 
possibly the Rosetsky March by Joseph Roth, which is absolutely uh, fantastic. Yes. And I noticed all these ones that I like seem to be set a generation before they are, the writer. There must be something about that. that and they're somehow not self-declared historical novels. They're not genre novels. They're not genre novels, no. So it, I wonder whether that's the case, that a genre novel necessarily kind of limits its quality to a certain extent. And if I, may, if I may be greedy, I was thinking about this as well. And, and it's four. It's four, four, sorry. No, sorry. I, like I said, I don't, I don't okay. like just these. Just I've got seven. I don't like these top, <laughs> top ones. Yeah, no. Um, I, seem to have a, I seem to have a predilection for what, what, what I can only call the fictional historical autobiography. So basically, Jumped. we're talking about I, Claudius. We're talking about... Ah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we're talking about... Margaret Yorsen or um, Memoirs of Emperor, uh, yes. Emperor Hadrian. Yeah. Which is I would, well. I would give a vote for that one. So well. Hard to go past, like, hard to go past I Claudius. I've read I Claudius about fifteen times. Love I think it. Memoirs of Hadrian is, is it's fantastic. Have you, read, have you read Memoirs of Hadrian? I'm not sure. I have. So you must do. good. You'll, you'll love oh, it. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love yeah. a bit of, I love a bit if, of classical. I quite like Count Belisarius actually, which is Robert Graves's other historical novel, which is set in in. The sort of as the decline of the Roman Empire in Britain. Right, I don't know. Right. That. Okay. Okay. I'll read no, that. You read Hadrian. Okay, Hadrian. Uh, okay, Lucy, that's really good. Now I'll, I'll, try, I'll try that. Yeah, lovely. Go on. Your well, the greatest ever, not your favourite, <sighs> the greatest ever historical novel. Challenge no, Robert no, Irwin. I'm not going to do the greatest ever. I'm no. going to do my favourite, oh. if that's all right. Fine. Yeah. Greatest ever, sorry, War and Peace. But I'll shut up now. Yeah, yeah. Stop that's, saying, stop, stop saying literary <laughs> novels and then pretending it's a historical. Also, novel. mine are not as high. No, exactly. I know. We all know what Toby's doing. He's doing literary virtue signals. At a col- to a colossal extent. Go on. I am going to say I I just can't think of anything much better than the Three Musketeers wow, by Alexandre Dumas. Good for you. It's just so and make good. the case. Why? Because it's just it's such good fun. It's completely it absorbing. It's um, it's the kind of I don't know. I can't really make a very coherent literary case for it because there might not be one. I don't know. I'm very fond but, of him uh, in general. Well, I think there's a certain pleasure in in the highest level of literary hackdom. So it it's clearly a genre novel. He clearly was a he hack. Sort of, in he sort of invented the genre, so he gets more points. Well, he does. He does not just yeah, him it, and Walter Scott. He basically saw what Walter Scott was doing and went, "Oh, that's good." And did it a lot better. And he said, "I think I'll teach the French about their entire history," and yeah. then did it. And just sort of churned it out. Yeah, I mean, in between doing countless other things yeah. as well, um, and it's just and it, they're also they're also they get increasing because there's three parts. I know. And the first one, I know you've read it too. The first one is very <laughs> is te- very rollicking. And it kind is of, good. You know, know thigh slapping and and brilliant i like the second one 30 years after mm. and, and the 20, 20, 20 years, years after, after sorry, 20 yeah. years after i think but they and they get more complex and then by the end you're really you're really involved with you them are. and they're old men and it's kind of heartbreaking and there's a fantastic moment in 20 years after where they try and rescue king charles the yes, first from being executed absolutely and even though you know aren't they lying underneath they're like underneath the scaffold and, and blood, blood falls on this on it it's d'artagnan is it, it or is. Athos? I, can't I think it's him and athos yeah 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 uh, and even though you know that Charles I does get executed. You're really going, you're maybe like, they'll on! do it, it's the Musketeers. <laughs> and, and they don't. Right, uh, we've got to finish, but I'm going to say, my, I'm staying in France. I don't think you'd heard of this, but I, I, someone recommended this to me. These are fantastic. It's called The Iron King. Uh, and it's a series of six novels by Maurice Drouin. And it's set at the beginnings of the Hundred Years' War. The first book's about Philip the Fair being cursed for his persecution of the Knights Templar. George R. R. Martin, who I do not like as a writer, says it's the original Game of Thrones. Mm. It is fantastically violent, cold-blooded, Machiavellian, uber-high politics. Uh, it's quite shockingly uh, done. It's beautifully written, or at least the translation is beautiful. Lucy, you could read it in the original French. M- maybe I could. The Iron King. Maury, have you heard sounds of it? Good. No, it sounds uh, great, No, I though. haven't. I mean, no. you mentioned it before, no. but no, I haven't. 
Check it out. Everyone should check it out. Maurice Drouin, The Iron King. And when, when was it written? Or when was the he wrote it in the, in the 50s. And I think in France it's been televised numerous times. I think it's quite right. a big thing in France and it's kind of not really crossed over there's beautiful new editions of it they've just republished all of oh, them okay. and they're really attractive looking things so mm. well there we go don't say this podcast is not useful that's recommendations ahoy for everybody it's so useful it's like a, like a spanner or a loaf of bread what better <laughs> should we put that on the, should we put that on the advert like a spanner or a loaf of bread it's as useful as well done well done when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In the arts pages of the TLS this week, though, we've got something of a theatre extravaganza. We've got Jazz Butterworth at the Royal Court, which we'll talk about with Toby Lichtig, who's still here with us. Um, Martin Krimp at the Almeida, Brecht at the Donmar and Tony Kushner at the National, or rather back at the National. Hal Jensen went along to see this for us and sat through eight hours of theatre in one day, so he gets the Stamina Award this week, certainly. Strong and stable. (laughs) Certainly stable, we hope, and we hope strong as well. Angels in America was written when the AIDS crisis was still unfolding in the early 1990s and it first showed at a tiny theatre in San Francisco and then gathered momentum till it opened on Broadway and then in London, previously at the National. It's a huge play, I think I'm right in saying, in scope and ambition and the subtitle, as you remind us, Hal, is a gay fantasia on national themes. Do you think it was and possibly is um, so successful because it tackled not only AIDS but also sort of everything else? The initial interest would have been the AIDS epidemic because um, yeah. clearly at the time when he wrote it, it was he started writing it in 1987, I mean, quite early on, mm. and it took a while to devise and develop and he workshopped it. Um, but still, it was premiered in 1992 and it was still um, an enormous crisis. Yeah, and uh, yeah, sure. people watching it then would have had a different reaction, I think, to people watching it now. I think your age makes a difference when you're, when you're watching this revival. Um, but the... Um, national issues are the ones that kind of allow it to carry on now I think the the fact he puts the kitchen sink in there I mean he really does try and address everything metaphysical in the play and the the AIDS epidemic is the crisis upon which 
what are the based. what are the national themes? Well, there's four main strong characters with their voices coming through, and it is about trying to find your identity, which in this case with the American theme seems to be quite a a national. You have to have a national aspect to your identity, which means you define perhaps with Republican or not with Republican, and and uh, you don't just rely on your you know your personal stories you seem to incorporate either perhaps your religion or whatever it is mm, yeah, so there's a, because there's a mormon character two mormon characters two mormon, mormon right? and his wife and his mother three mormon so, characters yes. there we go yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and it does trump loom does trump loom large is this no he it? doesn't really and they, they certainly which is, don't which is good in a way isn't it because yeah they do certainly you, don't bring it out um it clearly looms if you know your history you know that roy Cohn, who is a character in the play uh, was a sort of mentor to Trump, and there are similarities between the two of them, obviously, in their sort of monstrousness. Well, tell us about him, because I um, didn't know anything about him. He's played by uh, Nathan Lane, isn't he? Yes, very well indeed. In fact, he uh, he captures or channels monstrousness um, particularly well. Um, he was a notoriously sort of malevolent lawyer uh, all the way through the 50s to the 80s, really. Um, he was part of the McCarthy oh, investigations. God. He was a um, prosecutor. Yeah, he was an senior's lawyer, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he, yeah. yeah he, the full extent of their relationship is probably still not quite known, apparently. But it's, but it, still, it doesn't actually impinge. You don't watch the plays thinking, "What a marvelously relevant play!" Because of Trump, it's not really. No. It, it really does. It, that would be a bit feeble for eight hours. You don't need all that. It's, uh, it's much more to do with the individuals finding their identity. Really, it's, and, uh, and he dies of eight. He dies. Of eight. He does, which he did and, in in real, real life, life in nineteen eighty six. And I'm interested. We, does that in any way soften? Your view of him is—is is he does he become a, a, a martyr in, in, in a it's, sense? I mean, clearly the character in the play isn't quite the man in real life. I don't think because certainly all we see is we see him from the very beginning when he's both um, diagnosed with AIDS and when he's being disbarred. But all the way up to then in his life, he'd been triumphant and trodden over everyone else. But we don't get that in the play. We just get the moment from which he's on the back foot and resisting it all. His ego is massive and he's resisting it all. And you can't help but sympathise with someone who is pushed into that corner and is trying to defy the world in reality. It, there's, it's very clever, I think, the way Kushner gets us to identify with that a- ego element of him. Um, I don't... Th- I mean, he's, we don't come out thinking what a marvellous man he might have been. I mean, there, there isn't any of that, but it's it's amazing how quickly you warm to... So certainly Nathan Lane's portrayal, where he gets the virtuoso evil element to him in the first scene particularly so we're, we're sort of trapped <laughs> we're not allowed to hate him which is the easy thing to do is it moving it's exhausting obviously and that's part of what it is it drains you um watching eight hours you don't have to watch the two on the same day which i did but uh i think there's something about that full eight hour journey that that works it deliberately sprawls it deliberately refuses to come to a proper single conclusion and they're all looking to get to the um threshold of revelation these people and you're, it feels as though Kushner's saying in order to get there it's a bit of a hard journey there's no easy route and I'm not going to give you one um, he gives us all a blessing at the end the main character turns around and uh, offers a blessing to the audience um, it's, it's written in the play he offers this blessing more life is what it is but not religious is not no it's, it's uh, he says I bless you and says more life I think is that the literal Hebrew Yes, um, meaning of yes. blessing yes. more life. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. but it, I think again, if you were in 1992 listening to that, there might be an element of uh, hopeful defiance or something about it. Whereas now it yeah. feels quite a genial kind of you know benediction from from Andrew Garfield. <laughs> thank thank you very much. Because yeah. yeah. um, I was wondering, because because you talk about in your piece as well whether this because you, you contrast it with the My Night with Reg by yeah. by Kevin Elliott, which is much quieter and more formal. Bit of chamber music, really. Yes, yeah. and are we allowed to say more English? Or yes, shall I not I say think that? It's, it's, 
know, it's at very the risk English. of stereotyping us and them. You know, these happen to fit those stereotypes. Yes. I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's focused, it's nuanced, it's quiet, it takes place in one sitting room. It certainly does come to a conclusion, and it comes to quite a sad conclusion. It says, you know, it says there isn't... It doesn't give us more life, and at, at the end, Reg isn't there, and other people have died in the play, and that's it. Whereas mm. Krishna gives us this whole horrible story in many ways. I mean, really puts us through it and puts the characters through it. And then at the end says... Um, well, if if you wanted a, a silly version of it, really, it would be uh, Dory and Finding Nemo, sort of just keep swimming, just keep swimming. <laughs> oh, that's that's the sort of philosophy it comes really? comes down to. But yeah. it's the experience of watching it is what really, really yes. counts. And that's this sort of he, he makes you face certain truths and what makes you watch people taking their deceptions down and being confronted with their you know false selves which they've created throughout their lives and that's it's mm. it sort of requires that extent that's what i was wondering do you think because also there was the, that i've i've heard i i haven't seen it myself that there's a, a quite a big difference between the first play and the second that the first is much more tightly controlled and works as a play on its own whereas the second is much more sprawling and kind yeah, of all over the place definitely but true definitely true the i mean tightly controlled it's still three and a half hours yes, long yes yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> as sure. normal plays go Relatively, it's still quite long yeah but it all comes leads up to the point where the angel arrives um, yes. the messenger from the heavens arrives to tell um prior who's the lead character that he's um the prophet but it th- takes three and a half hours to get us there we, everyone's mm. been given this crisis they start reacting to it um we watch them trying to defend themselves against it but actually it's weird you reach the end of three and a half hours and something begins rather mm. than ends and so the angel arrives and you sort of get ready for part two which then doesn't give you a resolution it just goes it just goes in all directions you watch people falling apart and then it does try this neat little benediction at the end which is directed at the audience mm. uh to see if, if we can kind of leave with some kind of consolation i think <laughs> because otherwise you you just go there thinking what's you know the angels might be right because the angels in this play their view is stasis is the answer you every time you try progress as humanity we bring disaster to the world right. so the only Thing we can do at the moment is press pause and we have to stop and prior played by um, andrew garfield who's the lead refuses to take on this prophet's role He's, he decides that life right. however horrible is the only going. way you can get Keep hope yeah. and stasis isn't the answer i'm struck by this is a big national play taking on a national subject toby you're listening to this you saw the ferryman by jez butterworth which is about Ireland, isn't it? It's about, about the troubles. I mean, can, troubles. compared to Howe's Happy Ordeal, it's the equivalent of a Beckett short. It was a mere three hours at the Royal Court. Um, <laughs> I want to get to the end of this, your view on, on how long a play should be, because to me, this, this I don't want to sit a play for three and a half hours, generally speaking. Eight hours. Eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> Iron bottom it was over there. So, yes, do you, are you sensing a parallel here that this is a, I mean, is Jez Butterworth a big statement play about the state of a nation? Yes, at time? it is. Um, so, he, I mean, Jez Butterworth, actually, he's been knocking around for quite a long time but it was really Jerusalem that his, that was his complete sort of coming out play where suddenly it was selling out it got these huge transfers it got rave reviews it is fantastic and then he went quiet for a bit and there's, there's only been one play until now since then um, which is called The River and it was a short play an hour you'd have liked it for that, for that length alone <laughs> um, which was about four or five years ago and, and now but now he's suddenly come back and it's a proper socio-political psychodrama extravaganza um you know, kind of family conflict set against the backdrop of the Troubles. It's Northern Ireland, it's, it's the early 1980s, it's the hunger strikers, Bobby Sands, all that stuff's going on in the background, but it's set in this farmhouse in, you know, kind of rural county Armagh. Which he does, doesn't he? He often places these it's things what in he these bucolic what, what he's very, very good at is, is mining the opposition between the sort of the bucolic and the rural and the familial and the domestic and also 
by implication the sort of folkloric and ritualistic um, and ancient and then the sort of gritty urban gangsterish political contemporary turmoil or reason you know historical turmoil of a particular time that brushes up against it and how these two things interact with each other and is this i want to ask the same question of hal actually this is a period piece is this a piece that that is basically set in a specific period and therefore is judged as a period piece or or is it does it feel like this is a prism through which we're supposed to be considering the, the I, I i think it's a prism and actually by happy and i put the word happy in inverted commas coincidence i mean you know it's about northern Ireland, it's about the troubles and that's suddenly become very relevant relevant again because of brexit and i don't imagine jez butterworth particularly had that in mind when he started writing the play i don't know but you know ireland is a perennial problem and also the issues it deals with about loyalty to the state and loyalty to family and loyalty to political cause um, you know they are timeless and it's not necessarily just about Northern Ireland and if this play does last and is staged in 100, 200 years time I'm sure people will find ways of updating it accordingly But this, but the, uh, what you saw, saw Hal was, is more a revival of a, of a piece that was probably doing that at the time but It's but very now, specific yeah. to its time in one sense but it's, it doesn't date I don't think not? Um, the, the references are there so you've got um, Roy Cohn obviously and there are references to Reagan um, and the second play is called Perestroika so man there are, there are echoes there but but it's not what the play is about what was going on in the 80s and not journalistic the way it approaches it so uh, it's not trapped by it. And it's interesting what you're saying about it being kind of written and rewritten and redevised it did take years didn't it? Yeah he, I think he always conceived it as one large two-part play yeah but having got the first part done which does have a slightly tighter focus to it mm-hmm. the second part could almost have been anything and i think it's it's he's he's adapted it's even since the 1992 yeah. premiere he's done little fiddlings but as it was being written the 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 crisis the ongoing crisis was was changing and developing and worsening yeah it's still bad till for a long time I yeah mean, yeah yeah uh, it's not it's not that kind so. of it was he went oh i'll write about aids the aids crisis because now we've sorted it it was, it was, they, it was absolutely in the audience there it? were people who clearly wouldn't have been born in the late 80s, early 90s who mm. were watching this, for whom that wouldn't have been a resonant thing, really. Whereas there were people, you get to know your row very intimately during this, <laughs> because there are lots, lots of intervals, and there are people in my row who are in over 50. Um, I'm not. And uh, they were sort of shocked. At the first two intervals, they were quite shocked because they were coming out, they were just being reminded totally, taken straight back to that time and quite sort of startled mm. and stunned by what it brought out because uh, yeah. it was such a fearful... We didn't know how long it was going to know. We, we could put it historically. Well, is that true of Ireland as well? Now. I'm interested in that because you know I talk to people uh, on the radio show that I have that where Ireland, the troubles, doesn't mean very much to them. It's it's a thing that, that, that a lot of people grew up with. But if you're if you're under thirty, you didn't really necessarily grow up hugely. I think with if it you're it under thirty in Londonderry. Uh, or dairy, depending on depending on which part. Don't worry, I'm taking care of both of those. Depending on what sort of divide you like, and, and, and I learn neither. I think you do. Perhaps not if you grew up in London, though, and you weren't weren't subjected to well, IRA terrorism or whatever. So, so how does this feel? Or freedom fighting, depending the, on which part of the divide you come well, from. Well, still terrorism. I think whatever, you, whatever you, else you want to call it, it must still be terrorism. But does this feel like something that needs that needs to be re re brought to people's attention, or is it just why has he done this? That's I suppose that's an, has he got a political point to make? Has he got a because there's a clear purpose to the play that Hal's talking I about. Think he's What's got, the purpose of this one? I think he's got less of a political point to make than the play Hal saw, and that's partly because, you know, he's, he's, he's also writing historically. He wrote this over the last two or three years, but he set it 30 years ago, where, whereas, you know, your one was, was kind of being set as it was being written. Um, I think he's, he's using the politics as a backdrop, and so I think it's a convenient way of looking at it. You know, it's not necessarily about the troubles. 
Um, yes, there are a few specific things, and there's Maggie Thatcher on the radio talking about the hunger strikers and her disdain for them, but it doesn't necessarily have to just be about that. So I think it's probably less political in a sense. Uh, we have to we have to wrap this up. I'm just, you, you mentioned if this was staged in a hundred years' time, how they would do it. Do you think both of these plays, either of these plays, is, uh, are? I mean, how important how important are these plays? Are these significant? plays that will stand the test of time and, and I suppose in, to begin with how Angels in America has stood the test of time in the sense that it's now 20 years on That's and, true. It's, and it's still it's, it's still... really hard to predict isn't it with these um, what people but, will be wanting to watch I mean in terms of does, does, it, it, feel does it still work as a play uh, it, it works I mean whether it's important it's not as important now perhaps as it was then uh, or the impact is slightly less but it's, it still works and uh, the acting is very very good and so there's a lot to enjoy I mean a lo- <laughs> there is a lot uh, and 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 Jez Butterworth? Yes, to a certain extent. I think I think he is. I, I think you could probably call him one of, one of our major playwrights. I don't think this is as good as Jerusalem. So you know, if any of him survives and it's just one play, it's probably going to be that so far. But I do think it's I do think it's a big, powerful play, and it'll certainly get restaged. And it, it's already going to get a West End transfer, and it'll no doubt end up on Broadway. And yeah, I think it'll it'll certainly last for a while. Well, it's nice that the, that two decent plays and. Um, that you can go and see. I think the, I think the hit rate of, of plays. Unlike the last one I sent you to, which you didn't like at all. Romeo and Juliet. Well, it was. A, it was <laughs> and actually, a, the last one you sent me to as well, the kid stays in the picture, which was extremely no, disappointing. No, I didn't that one. I agree with you. To this, and that's fine. I yeah. don't well, often <laughs> find myself heartily recommending plays. No, but, and I would say shell out the money and go and see this. Well, that's 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 as good as it can get. I think uh, that's all we've got time for this week. I thanks very much go to Toby Lishtig, Hal Jensen, and Sudhir Hazaras Singh, and of course to the Northerner of the week. Lucy Dallas, have you had fun? Oh, so much fun. Northerner of the week, I'm not sure about, but let's... Um... I don't know, you're not up against very much competition here. <laughs> not, not in this current studio, no. But, but outside. I'm, you know, <laughs> I think the award also works outside as well. Uh, do go to the dash tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of The Paper, which has a wonderful image drawn by our resident artist Darren Smith on the cover of A Wolf and includes a lovely feature on the novelist Molly Keane, some fine American history on flooding, the CIA's contamination of literary journalism and the birth of the FBI. You can tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions. Next week, Thea will be returning for a philosophy special show where Tim Crane, our philosophy editor, will be back as he promised to solve the mind-body problem once and for all. How could you miss that? Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.